Yeah, good morning, guys. So my wife and I have really gotten into watching this show on Netflix called Love is Blind. Any fans? Anybody seen it at least? Okay, so I say that my wife and I have really gotten into watching it. Here's what's going on. She's watching it. I'm on the couch pretending to play on my phone, but I'm kind of tracking what's going on, all right? If you've never seen it, it is a show. It's in its second season on Netflix, and basically the idea behind it is they take 15 men and 15 women from the same city. It's a reality dating show. They put them in this house. They live in these little things called pods, which are like specialty rooms, and the thing that makes these rooms special is that they are able to talk to one another, but they can't see one another. This is why they call it Love is Blind, right? So they're there for 10 days. And in the course of 10 short days, they're supposed to first speed date every single other person that's there in the, uh, in the pods. Then they're supposed to determine which of those people they like and want to pursue further, which let me remind you once again, they have not seen each other. They don't know what one another looks like. So then after you've chosen who you want to get to know, you spend some time chatting and stuff like that. And within 10 days, you're supposed to find a person to propose marriage to. It ends, or at least this part of the show ends, with somebody saying to a perfect stranger, will you marry me? Now, it's only when the question is proposed and the answer is yes, that the doors open and they get to see each other for the very first time, all right? And then they're turned loose. They go move into an apartment together. They live together as uh, fiancés for four weeks, and then the show pays for them to have a wedding. And it's a legit legal wedding. And at the ceremony, they have to say, I do. Or in front of all of their friends and family, they have to say, this was a really bad idea. And I don't. All right. There is a lot that I could say about this show. Like a lot that I kind of want to talk about. But one of the things that I love about it is that it puts an emphasis on personality instead of physical attraction. I think that's a really good thing, right? Like I, I believe that we should be choosing our mates primarily based on how compatible we are with them rather than how physically attracted we are to them. Because how many guys know beauty fades over time, all right? We're all going to get saggy one day. So let's choose somebody that we enjoy being with once we get saggy. I think that 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 is a really good thing. However, I will say it creates some very awkward moments when the couples get to see each other for the very first time. And every so often the girl is like, Ooh, and you see it on camera and you just cringe so hard for this poor guy that now has to go live with this girl who clearly doesn't find him attractive. One thing I dislike about the show it's how quickly people say, I love you to each other. Oh my goodness. Like they've known each other for a week and a half. And they're already, they've gone from perfect strangers to fiancés in the course of a week and a half. They're already making the strongly, strongest declarations and commitments of love that humans can even make. Like, that's really fast, you guys. Um, if you were to go grocery shopping on the day that these couples were introduced to one another, they would be saying, I love you before your milk expires. Like, this is entirely too fast, okay? Can I just state the obvious? It is impossible to fall in love with somebody in 10 days. You just can't do it. Oh, you can fall in lust with somebody in 10 days for sure. You can become attracted to and infatuated with somebody in 10 days, but let's be real. You don't actually truly love them in that short of a time period. You say, wow, Dan, you're such a romantic man. No, I am a romantic. In fact, I'm such a romantic that I get frustrated when people use the love word so casually. Another thing that I don't like about the show is that it ends, the show ends as soon as the marriage begins. 
The show ends as soon as the marriage begins. It's, it's almost like, you know, all the interesting and exciting stuff that's going to happen in your relationship happens during the dating portion. But once you get to the marriage portion, it's not even worth looking at, all right? Have you ever noticed how every reality show, every fairy tale you've ever heard, it always ends with a wedding? Why? Because apparently nobody wants to watch what happens once you get married. It's either a train wreck or it's boring. That's the implication that we get from the media around us. But listen, that's a real shame. Because we live in a world that knows well how to fall in love, but has little idea how to stay in love. We live in a world where people are constantly falling in and out of love with one another. It's the staying in love that's very, very difficult. 40% of first marriages will end in divorce. 40%. Now, you may have heard that it was 50%. It's not. It's 40%. And so if you think about that, you're like, okay, if I get married to my beloved, we have a better than even chance of staying married. That sounds like pretty decent odds at least, right? But of the 60% of people who manage to just live out their life married, how many of them do you believe are truly happy? Of the 60% that never give up, never divorce, never separate, how many of them do you believe are in their 60s, 70s, and they still like each other? It seems like that number is pretty small, that we have marriages that are breaking up, we have marriages that are going the distance, but regardless, we seem to be missing true love. Falling in love is easy, but staying in love feels more like a crapshoot. So here's what we're doing over the next three to four weeks in this relationship goal series. I want to do everything I can to help you to cultivate a marriage that's full of true love. Like, I want to do my best to show you from the scriptures what the Bible has to say and, and to just convince you that it is possible to be 50, 60, 70 years old and still married to a person that you love. I don't want your marriage just to survive. That's too low of a goal. I want your marriage to thrive. I want you to be the couple in the retirement home that's so cute. They're still holding hands and kissing each other and everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's what I want. I want that for my marriage. I believe many of you, most of you want that for your marriage and I certainly believe that God wants it as well. Now, if you're gonna have this kind of marriage full of true love, as the Bible describes it and defines it anyway, then you might have to challenge some of your assumptions about marriage. You may have to change the way you think about love and commitment to one another and things like that, but I promise you it's gonna be worth it. Like, wouldn't you love to have God's blessing on your relationship? Wouldn't you love to know that God is smiling on your marriage? That, I think, would be wonderful. I mean, I think of Proverbs chapter number five, verse 18, and it says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. I love this because clearly the, the, the scripture here is talking to somebody that's married, a guy, right? Because it's talking about his wife. And it says, think about your youth. So that means they're probably older. They've been married a while. So think back to the good old days when the relationship was awesome. And it says to rejoice. It means that it is possible to have a marriage that goes for a long, long time, even lifelong, and to still love it to get great joy and satisfaction from it. So let's start this morning with that all-important four-letter word, love. Let's talk about love a little bit today, okay? Because that word is everywhere, isn't it, in our world? It's in music and movies. It's, you know, celebrating holidays we talk about love, T-shirts, social media reacts, like, oh, I love this post so much. Love is everywhere in our world. And love is also everywhere in the Bible. If you read the scriptures, you'll find that the New Testament talks about love more than almost anything else. And the Old Testament is, you know, full of tons of passages about love as well. But while the world and the word are both using those same four letters, 
they're using them in very different ways. When the word talks about love, it means something pretty different from what the world usually means when it talks about love. And so if we want to have this marriage that's full of true love, that goes the distance, has God's blessing on it, then we have to start thinking about it from a biblical perspective rather than just the world's perspective. So let me give you an example. Ephesians chapter number five, verse 25, it's here on the screen. Four simple words. It says, husbands, love your wives. I mean, you read those four words and you're kind of like, is that helpful? I don't get it. Like, of course, I know I'm supposed to love my wife. Yeah, obviously. So what is it? This almost seems too basic, too superficial, too simplistic to be of any help to those of you guys that are married. But like all scripture, this verse is really like a diamond, man. You pick it up and you examine it. You turn it, look at it from a different perspective, a different angle. You will find so much depth, so many facets and, and beautiful parts in it. This verse alone has the power to set your marriage on the right track this morning. Morning. So let's uh, talk about it here for just a second. Let's start with an observation. In this verse, Paul seems to be commanding an emotion. And that's impossible, isn't it? He's commanding husbands to feel love for their wives. And if you know anything about emotions, they kind of happen to you. It's like they come over you and you don't really have a lot of control over them. It's very hard to fake or manufacture an emotion. And so when Paul says, husbands, you need to feel love for your wives, you're kind of, what? Like if I stood on stage this morning and I said to you, all right, everybody in the crowd, I want you to feel afraid. There are some of you that are like, way ahead of you, Dan. I'm scared of a lot in life, okay? But there are some of you that are like, I'm not afraid today, Dan. I don't have anything to be fearful of. So I don't know what you want me to do. I can't just feel afraid because you told me to feel afraid. So some of you husbands in particular, you'll read a verse like this, and it says, love your wives. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, I want to love my wife. Genuinely, I do. I wish I could. But if I'm honest, I don't feel those feelings anymore. They stopped a long time ago. And simply telling me that I'm supposed to have these feelings, that isn't really helpful to me because I've been trying to manufacture these feelings. I've been trying to fake that feeling for many years and it hasn't really paid off. Can I tell you this perspective, that love is an emotion, that it's something you feel is a lie. That is not the way the Bible presents love. We think of love as an emotion that we feel, but from a biblical perspective, love is a choice that we make. Love is a choice. So that means that love is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not something you possess or you have. It is something that you choose to do. It is action that describes true love biblical love. Now, part of this is kind of an issue with the English language, all right? If you, how many of you guys speak another language? Anybody speak another tongue? Yeah, some of you are like, kind of, but not really. I took a couple classes in high school. Does that count? Um, other languages often have multiple words that we would translate into English as love, meaning they have a lot more nuance in their vocabulary about this concept of what it means to love someone. In English, we've just got these simple four letters, and that's kind of it. It's supposed to communicate this huge range of emotions. So I might say to you, man, I love a cheeseburger. I love me a good cheeseburger. Mm. And I might also say, I love my puppy dog. I mean, I love my dog. Clearly, I don't mean the same thing when I'm talking about loving a burger and loving my dog. That's how you go to jail. I could say to you, I could say to you, I love my sister. Oh, I love my sister so much. She's the only sister I have. I just love her. 
And guys, I love my wife. I don't mean the same thing. I don't mean the same thing. See, the word love is stretched to accommodate all of these different meanings and, you know, nuances and usage and things like that. And it's no wonder we get confused when we start talking about love. What kind of love are we even talking about? Many of you know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And what you might not know is that in the Greek language, there are four different words that are translated as love in English. So that means they have four times the nuance in their vocabulary than we do. What that means is the Bible might be able to help offer you a little more perspective than the world can, because it's literally using a different language. It is speaking in a way that nobody else is really speaking to you. So what I want to do this morning is I want to share these four words, these Greek words that are translated as love in English, and I want to see if they can help give you some more confidence on what true love really looks like. Let's start with the first Greek word. It's eros. Ooh, this is the Greek word from which we get the English word erotic. It is. It's the kind of love that means romance and attraction and passion and sex. It's like that, it's like that swipe right, Romeo and Juliet, wedding night kind of love. You with me? It's that sort of passion that we're talking about. We might describe this eros as love expressed as feelings. It's primarily about feelings. It's an emotion. It's this drive. It's this fire inside of me. I got to be with her, Right? When we talk about love in the modern world, at least romantic, uh, you know, going on a date, eventually getting married, this is what we mean. We're talking about that feeling that I've got to be with this person all the time. We see Eros illustrated in the Bible very clearly in the book of Song of Solomon. Anybody ever read the book of Song of Solomon? Woo! That's spicy, okay? In a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about sex from a biblical perspective. It's going to be a really great service. You are not going to want to miss it. Your kids are probably going to need to go upstairs. And so anyway, we're going to be talking about the things the scripture has to say on the subject of sex. Some of you have no idea how blunt the Bible is when it comes to sex, particularly when we're talking about this eros kind of love throughout uh, the Song of Solomon. So we've got eros. We kind of understand that. That's pretty clear. It's the love is blind kind of love that we're talking about. About, right? Then we move to the second kind, and this is called philia. Philia, P H I L I A. And this is where we get the word Philadelphia from. Um, that's the city of brotherly love. Or we use this as a suffix. So we might, we add it to the end of a word and explain. So, like, we might call somebody a cinephile. That means they really like movies. Or we call them an audiophile. That means they really like music. See, aphilia is a love that's based on shared interests, history, or companionship. This is generally not romantic love. This is like sorority sisters. Or this is um, guys on a basketball team that have developed a bond from winning and losing together over many years. It's kind of this friendship it's kind of this uh, brothers at arms sort of thing. We could, in fact, describe it as uh, friendship, love expressed as friendship. It's like saying, I love you because I like being around you. You're a friend. You're enjoyable to hang out with. We have similar interests and things. In the Bible, we see this illustrated very clearly through the relationship of David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. David and Jonathan were really good friends. Um, In fact, it makes some people uncomfortable just how close they were. They had a very close, like intimate friendship. It was really, really deep. So that's a great example of philia that we see in the uh, Bible. Then we get to the third one. It's the word storge. Storge, that's kind of fun to say. Storge is love that's based on family ties or responsibility. Family ties 
or responsibility. It's the love of a parent towards their child. It's the responsibility that a grown child has to care for their aging parent. It's basically like love that is expressed as duty or obligation. If you've got a teenager in your house, there have been times where you're like, I do not love this kid. I got to keep caring for them. Like they won't let me kick them out but I'm not feeling very loving towards them today. You are exercising this storge kind of responsibility love. It's duty or obligation. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have an obligation to your family and things like that. Now, we see this illustrated throughout the Bible in many different ways, but there's a couple of places in the New Testament where it's illustrated negatively. That is the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans and in the book of 2 Timothy talks about people who are Ah, storge, without storge, meaning they don't have family affections. He's specifically talking about people who have abandoned their family. They've run away from their responsibilities. They're not taking care of their kids and their wives and things like that. So we've got eros, romance. We've got philia, friendship. And then we've got storge, duty, legal, family obligations, all right? Now, I want you to stay with me here. These three types of love in the Bible, they form the typical progression of a marriage relationship. It starts with eros, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, man. When you find your person, boy, it's all physical attraction and flirting and daydreaming and talking on the phone all night. You remember when you used to talk on the phone all night to your person? Now it's like, this could have been a text. Why are you calling me, right? This is holding hands until your fingers fall asleep. But when you're in the eros stage, you're like, who cares? At least we're still holding hands. This is the, the pride and validation that comes from being chosen. You know, it's like, man, she could have chose anybody, but she chose me. This is all passion and excitement and feeling. I want to be with them all the time. In fact, I can't even imagine going through the rest of my life not having this kind of feeling. I need you by my side because I love the way that this feels. So you decide to make it official and to make it permanent. You stand at the altar in front of your friends and family and you say, I do. But listen to me, over time, eros inevitably fades. That's not to say that you're no longer attracted to your spouse or there's no more romance or anything like that. But the intensity of eros, romance, passion, that can't be sustained over the long term. And so what happens is eventually eros kind of gives way to philia or friendship. You're married to your best friend. And that's a wonderful thing. Man, I hope that you're married to your best friend. I really do. You go on trips together. You watch TV shoulder to shoulder. You watch like stupid reality dating shows together. You talk about your day at the dinner table. It's a wonderful thing to have philia or friendship with your partner. Now, it's not unlike the friendships that you have in life. Like you get to this stage or you have this kind of relationship and it's like, yeah, my relationship with him is a little bit like my friendships with other people. But there's a big difference between this friendship and all the other ones that you might have. Do you know what that difference is? This friendship is 24-7, you guys. It never stops. That person is always around. So you don't get the luxury of saying, all right, I've had enough of you. I'll talk to you later. You don't get the luxury of saying, I'm busy, I can't hang out right now, I'll get back at you next week. Your person, your friend, is always there with you. And this particular friendship has pressures on it that no other friendship has to bear. The, the pressures of sex. Hopefully your other friendships don't have that pressure. The pressure of tight finances. The pressure of raising children. 
the pressure of dealing with extended family drama, the pressures that come from work and goals and all of these different things in life. And so what ends up happening over time is that these unique pressures, they tend to, they tend to squeeze out the remaining eros They tend to squeeze out whatever philia, whatever friendship you have, so that eventually, after some period of time, what you're left with is duty, obligation. I love her because she's my wife. He's the father of my children. That's about the best thing I can say at this point. We're living as roommates We're kind of, our focus has shifted from one another and shifted from enjoying life together to kind of the duty and responsibility of raising kids and paying the bills and maintaining a household and things like that. This is the typical progression that relationships tend to go through. And you'll notice that in each one of these stages, the intensity of the feelings wanes. It drops, or at least it changes in significant ways. And I want to be really clear here. This is true of great relationships and awful relationships. If you look at this and you say, whoa, that describes us perfectly. Like we're way over here at the right now. We've basically got no feelings left. That doesn't mean you chose the wrong person. It doesn't mean that you failed somewhere along the way or that God isn't pleased with you and he hasn't blessed your relationship. This is literally the trajectory of every single relationship on the planet including my own. I tend to think that Amber and I have a fairly strong marriage. I really do. We've been married for 18 years. We have managed to survive that. And during those 18 years, we've never had a season in which we were genuinely considering divorce. We've just never been there. There've been a couple of fights where it was like, don't you say it, don't say it, because at this point I might agree. But we've never genuinely gotten to the point where it was like, I think this thing is done. But even though I feel we've got a strong marriage, and listen, I don't want to hold my marriage up as some kind of example, because if some of you had a marriage like our marriage, it would be a a step down. But anyway, um, even though I feel like we've got a good one, this is still exactly what we've experienced. Listen, when Amber and I first started dating, you guys, we would go to Red Lobster and have dinner. Red Lobster was a big date for us back in the day. I mean, it was a big one. Here's what would happen. I was so poor. I was a youth pastor. I was making $70 a week as a youth pastor, and I was in school. So I would take her out for this lovely dinner at Red Lobster. She would get the lobster. I would get the biscuits. Are you with me? I couldn't afford anything else. I'm like, no, babe, I'm not hungry today. You get whatever you want. I'm good. It's totally worth it, all right? So we'd be sitting there at the dinner table. I'm eating my biscuit. She's eating her seafood. And boy, we would just lock eyes. We would just stare deep into one another's souls for a long time. Like people, the waiter would come by and he'd be like, are you guys having a contest? Like whoever looks away first loses or something like that. Do you know that today, if I hold my wife's gaze for more than two seconds, she's like, why are you being weird? <laughs> when we got married, we, we, we got married, we jump in bed together. Don't worry, the story's not going anywhere weird. We get into bed and she does, my wife does what I think every wife on the planet does, at least based on the conversations I've had. She takes her ice cold feet and she puts them right on my legs. And I got to tell you, in that honeymoon phase, I said verbatim to my wife, I will be your foot heater forever, babe. <laughs> These days, I'm like, girl, you better go put some socks on. This is not my job. We'll buy you a heated blanket or something. It's not my job to warm your feet up, all right? So you see that in the beginning, we started with such passion and commitment and excitement. And over time, it ends up waning. And this is true for all sorts of relationships. And when the eros is passed, we wonder, where did the the passion go? Where's that excitement? I don't get butterflies anymore. 
When I hold your hand, it just feels sweaty. It doesn't feel electric, you know? And so we're like, man, I miss that. I, I feel like our relationship now is missing something. And over enough period of time, life's pressures, man, they just squeeze out the friendship that you used to have, the enjoyment you used to have talking and doing things together. And so now there's kind of only duty and obligation left. It's like, yeah, we're married and I don't believe in divorce, so I guess we'll see this thing out. I I don't want to pick on anybody here. I really don't, but maybe I should. There are a lot of Christian couples that are legally married but functionally divorced. So you say like, oh, we're we're Christians. We don't believe in divorce. But you've already given up on this thing. You're roommates and nothing more. Listen, can I just challenge you? Don't lie to yourself. Say that you're honoring God by staying married when you already said this is over in your heart. That's not honoring to Jesus. Now, the goal is not to go out and get, I'm not giving you permission to go get a divorce. That's not it. Instead, there's a way to recover what you lost. So here's what happens. We get to this store J section. We kind of feel like, man, it's just nothing but duty and responsibility. And it's not even that much fun anymore. And so one of two things will happen. Either we'll just resign ourselves to a partnership. We'll say, okay, because I don't believe in divorce or because it would be an absolute mess to separate the finances and figure out uh, visitation schedules and stuff. We're just going to stay married, right? We're going to resign ourselves to a partnership. That's all there is. There's no more love. There's no more relationship. It is nothing but legal obligation to one another. And that's what many people end up doing. The other thing that people will end up doing if they're kind of not willing to accept that arrangement is that uh, they'll go find somebody else. They'll go look for somebody else to experience eros or philia with. So that usually happens through a divorce and a remarriage. Sometimes it happens when you stay married, but you choose to have an affair. You're finding somebody else to uh, recapture that eros and that philia, okay? And uh, here's, the, here's the truth. I'll just be real with you guys. If you go start a relationship with somebody new, I guarantee you it will be full of eros and philia. Go have a one-night stand with somebody. That illicit excitement is going to be there. You're going to feel it again. Go on dates with somebody, and you'll start to remember that, that sensation, that experience of learning something new and discovering that you guys have so much in common, getting starry-eyed over that person all over again. If you choose a new partner, you will start back over here at Eros. But listen to me now. If you don't change the way that you view love, if you don't come with a different set of expectations and plans, you will eventually find yourself working your way through the exact same process again, just with a different person. Can I prove it to you? 40% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And 73% of third marriages end in divorce. Listen, if the problem was that you chose the wrong person, your odds should get better with each successive marriage because you, you already know what's wrong with that person, so I'm not going to choose somebody like them. I'm going to choose somebody better and better and better. That doesn't work. We end up getting worse when we move on to a new person. Why? Because we're repeating the exact same patterns, only this time we move through the stages faster because we're like, oh, crap, I chose wrong again. I guess I need to choose another one. Pretty soon, you're Elizabeth Taylor, and you've got like eight marriages behind you, all right? What does this teach us? It teaches us, this chart, 
teaches us that the kind of love that starts a relationship is not the kind that sustains it. The kind of love that jump-started your romance is not the kind of love that will see you through to a silver anniversary. It's a totally different kind of love. The first kind is not strong enough. It's not deep enough to get you there. So if you only define love as that feeling of excitement in a new relationship, then you're going to feel like you've fallen out of love with somebody really quickly. And if you believe the main purpose of your marriage is to raise kids, then what's going to be left when you're empty nesters? The eros love, the philia love, it's not enough to sustain you. That is not true love. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 here, the verse we started out with. Husbands, love your wives. Now in this verse, which of those Greek words that I've just shared with you do you believe the apostle Paul has used? Husbands, eros your wives, boy. Husbands, philia your wives. Be their friend. Husband, storge your wives, bro. You said I do you better. Which of those do you think he's using? The answer is none. Because I told you there were four Greek words that are translated as love, and we've only talked about three of them so far, haven't we? The last word for love, and the one that the Apostle Paul uses here, and the one that is used almost everywhere in the New Testament to talk about love is the word agape. Agape. Agape is a whole other kind of love from the other three that we've talked about. The difference is the three loves we've come up with so far have their origin in us. They have their origin from humanity. Agape is divine love. It is the love that God shows towards his people. Perfect, unconditional, unending. It's sacrificial love. It's love that's focused on what it can give in a relationship and not what it's getting from a relationship. Agape is not an emotion. It's an action. John chapter number three, verse 16, most famous verse in the world, for God so loved the world that he took what he wanted. No. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that he could have a relationship with us knuckleheads. That's my translation, not the Bible's. It's a noun. I mean, it's a, it's a verb. It's not a noun. It's an action. It's a choice. It's not based on feeling. It's something much deeper, something much better. We find this kind of love clearly illustrated for us in 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you guys had this read at your wedding. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, I want to read this passage. I don't have these words on the screen. I just want you to listen to this, okay? Listen to what the scripture says about agape love. And I want you to ask yourself, if Paul were merely talking about eros or philia or storge, would these words be appropriate? Would they describe the kind of relationship that those three loves would produce? No, spoiler alert. Listen to this. Paul says, love is patient. We could stop right there. We could have a counseling session on patience in the Sueza household. Oh my goodness, I need to remember this. Like when I'm like, babe, we got to leave at 5.15 and it's 5.20 and we're still not walking out the door. But the scripture says agape is patient. Agape is kind. Agape is not jealous. Who you texting? Let me see. It's not boastful or proud or rude. How many times do I have to tell you how to work that remote? You are so dumb. Here we go again. <laughs> Agape does not demand its own way. There's one way to load a dishwasher. Any other way is wrong. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Oh, you did that last week? I'm going to go do it this week. 
It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful, and it has the ability to endure through every circumstance. Eros cannot endure through every circumstance. Philia cannot endure. Storge is not even enough to endure through every circumstance, but agape love can. Down in verse number 13, Paul closes out the chapter and he says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, he says, is love. Isn't that interesting? If you were to say faith, hope, or love, which one's most important? You'd probably say faith. Faith is the most important. That's the Christian answer. That's the Sunday school answer, right? Wrong. Paul says it's love. Love is the greatest of the things that will last forever. Agape is the kind of love that God says will lead to a marriage that contains eros, but isn't reliant on it. It's the kind of love that produces best friends and healthy families. It's the kind of love that results in transformed lives. Hey, it's the kind of love that builds world-changing churches. The love of God that we've received from him and we can share with those around us. Now, we're going to be talking about agape more over the next couple of weeks because it's really that important. So let me give you a few handles for the message, some practical things that you can do right here and now if you want to get your marriage or relationship headed towards this agape kind of love. First thing I think you should do, is identify which stage of love that you're currently in. Now, listen to me, okay? Uh, it's not as clear and linear as I've made it out. See, I've simplified things a whole lot. You know, it's not like yesterday we were clearly in Eros, but this morning I woke up and it's gone. I guess we're just friends now. It's not quite that simple, okay? But here's what I know. You know which stage you're in. You know where your marriage is. You know, you know if you're primarily operating out of duty or obligation or if there's friendship, or if there's still passion and romance behind it. So your homework, if you're in a relationship, if you're married, is to have this conversation with your spouse. Like even on the drive home today, where do you think we are in this chart? And sometimes you're gonna find out, both of you know, listen, at this point it's just duty, or we're friends, I wish we could recapture some of that eros. We seem to be good friends. Some of you, some of the, some of you are going to say like, "Oh, we're in the eros stage." You're like, "No, nah, I'm in the duty stage." And you'll discover that you're way far apart in what you think is going on. This can be a helpful thing just to identify where it is that you're at. Oh, one more thing: be honest. This isn't a time to spare somebody's feelings or try to blunt the truth. If you want to figure out where you're going, you got to know where you're starting. You with me? And so you got to be honest about what, what the reality is in your relationship. Second thing you should do is consider what you could do to recover some of what you had in the earlier stages of your relationship. So you might hear me this morning saying like, oh, well, Eros leads to Philia and then to Storge and that's it. You know, all you need is agape. Don't worry about the other three. No, if you want to have a marriage full of true love, if you want to have a marriage that you love for the rest of your life, you're going to need all four kinds of love. And so if you've kind of passed through the Eros stage, what can you do to recapture some of that magic? It is possible. If you've kind of left off friendship, what can you do to start to develop Develop that philia again with your spouse. Maybe you have date nights. I get it. You're busy. Babysitters are expensive. There are a million excuses. But if you want to work your way backwards, date nights are one of the best things you can do. Not a date night every six months. I'm talking like a date night every week, every couple of weeks at most. Maybe you start to have some, some long conversations, not just about basic stuff. Tell me about your day, but like, tell me something new about you. Tell me how you're feeling. Tell me, tell me what, like get deep, get real in the conversation. Go on a vacation together. 
I know, like money's tight and you may not be able to travel the world right now. Go to Red Deer, man. Who cares? Just get away. Like go with your spouse somewhere where you two can focus on you. Go to counseling. Go to counseling. I told you guys earlier that Amber and I have been married for 18 years. We've never had a season in which we seriously considered divorce. You better believe we've been to a counselor before. There have been plenty of times where we needed a referee. We needed somebody to come in. And every time we went to a counselor, our marriage got stronger. There is no shame in going to get help in your relationship. In fact, if you're going to die still married to your spouse, you're going to need counseling at some point. Have sex, whatever it takes for you two to come together and to experience or recapture some of that passion, some of that enjoyment of one another. That's what you need to do. Third, carry with yourself the declaration that true love begins when feelings end. This is the heart of agape love. It's love that is not based on feelings or emotion or relationship. It's the choice to love. To love when your partner is not being particularly lovable and you're not feeling very loving that day. When those two criteria are present and you still treat them in a loving way, that's agape. That's when you know you're walking and living and loving in true agape. And fourth, you should abide in God's agape love for you. Abide in God's agape love for you. The scripture says, 1 John 4, 7, God is the source of agape. He's the source of love. I can't give to my partner what I do not possess myself. So if I, ha- if I want to show my wife agape, then I need to go to the source of agape. I need to experience that. I need to let myself be agaped so that I can in turn agape other people in my life. So you've got to experience that love from God, that forgiveness that's not based on anything you've done right. It's based solely on his grace and mercy in your life. If you do that, you will be much more equipped. In fact, it's the only way you can be equipped to give agape to the people that are around you. Making marriage work is a lot of work. In fact, it's so much work that some of you should wait a little while before you jump in. There's still some work you need to get ready for ahead of time. Check out our past messages on that. But here's the good news. With the Lord's help and a slightly different perspective on what true love actually is, it is possible. 